JM in the AM, as, I, uh, as I'm uh, set to introduce uh, Dr. Kalish, uh, I just reminded myself that I believe Rabbi Goldwasser is actually one of the uh, instructors and rabbis in the Turo College system. The Turo College and University system with, with an incredible number of students is America's largest not-for-profit independent institution of higher and professional education under Jewish auspices. was founded in uh, 1971. And um, Dr. Alan Kadish, a prominent cardiologist, dedicated teacher, prolific researcher, and experienced administrator, is the president of the Turo College and University System. Dr. Kalish, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. One of the first people we spoke to when COVID-19 came to the United States was you, and that was many, many months ago. Before we talk about uh, COVID-19 and the vaccine, uh, tell me how the tens of thousands of students in the Turo College and University system have been adjusting to this new reality. It's been difficult for everyone, but overall, I think they're doing pretty well. We managed to convert 90% of education to remote education almost overnight around Purim time. Wow. And... Uh, there are, of course, clinical experiences and a few laboratories that and that have been in person in the spring. In the fall, we have a few classes that are also meeting in person under carefully controlled circumstances. Most of the students are learning remotely, and most of them have adapted very well. We've done surveys of the students, and the overwhelming majority feel like they've gotten a quality education remotely. That doesn't mean we're not anxious to get back to things as they were or almost as they were. But by and large, the students are doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. Everybody wants to get back to as close to normal as possible. One of the methods, one of the ways, one of the avenues to accomplish that is, of course, the vaccine. And uh, it's interesting that uh, when we speak to people in the world of politics, those who analyze the news of the day, uh, we pick up a lot of skepticism about the vaccine. Interestingly enough... When we've spoken to people in the medical field, we get very little other than enthusiasm for the vaccine. Where do you, Dr. Alan Kadish, fall on the enthusiastic level of the uh, current vaccine? I think uh, the vaccine has been uh, an amazing journey of science, medicine, and society. It's, I- I'm very much in favor of people receiving the vaccine. I think it's been both vaccines that are currently available in the United States have been extensively tested. Uh, There have been a few allergic reactions, a handful, uh, to one of the components of the vaccine. We think it's something called polyethylene glycol. Um, But um, overall, uh, the data on vaccine efficacy are about 95% with very, very rare significant side effects. And uh, it seems to protect people from getting coronavirus disease. And even the ones who get it seem to have mild cases. So I'm a strong proponent of getting the vaccine as soon as it's legally and reasonably possible. And I think uh, the skepticism uh, arises from two different areas. One um, is there's a group of people who are skeptical about, quote, foreign substances and vaccines in general. Uh, I think uh, those concerns 
we've talked about regarding measles and other things, I think those concerns are overblown. We always need to be careful about therapies that we administer or vaccines that we administer, and that's why they're extensively tested. Uh, but there's a group of people who just don't believe in vaccines in general, and then there's a group of people who object to certain policies of people involved in developing the vaccine, and so up till recently had had something invested in suggesting that there's something negative about the vaccines. I think the politics piece is going away. When you look at even people who said that they were concerned about it, once the vaccine's available, they seem to be taking it. Um, and I think the, you know, those who are generally opposed to vaccination for a variety of reasons, none of which I think are well-founded, but um, you know, some of those are well-meaning people. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, I'm hoping that resistance to the vaccine goes away because I think it's very, very important that we achieve herd immunity as soon as possible. Dr. Alan Kadish with us, president of Turo College. Can a regular person like myself understand the difference between the two vaccines that are out there right now? I, or I would need a medical degree just to simply understand the difference in the makeup and the ingredients, so to speak, of the vaccine. Uh, you know, I'm, it's not, I don't think necessarily that a medical degree would help. I think the vaccines are pretty similar. The two, one by, uh, one by made by Pfizer and the other by Moderna, are very similar. They both um, use a very unusual mechanism to create a vaccine, or at least one that hasn't been used previously, which is that there's a little piece of genetic material that then the body uses to create proteins against which it creates antibodies. So it's, it's a creative way to produce a lot of immunity pretty quickly. Um, both of them target the same region of the virus, which is the protein that the virus uses to attach to cells and attack cells, something called the spike protein. Um, where, where they differ a little bit is they differ in the which part of that protein they attack. Um, the Pfizer one, which is a little better described, um, is a compilation of several antibodies. So it's not just one antibody, but it attacks several parts of the spike protein. seems the Moderna vaccine works the same way. So I don't, uh, I don't think that there's much in the way of technical knowledge that distinguishes them. They attack, they're slightly different antibodies that attack that same protein. Uh, when people express shock at how fast this vaccine was developed, uh, somebody uh, on the air with us from the medical field said you don't realize that, that so much of what uh, has been developed over the last year was really researched and in a way developed over the last two decades. And people need to understand that type of ongoing research is, is in fact, ongoing and that, uh, you know, eventually when you need that research, it's available. Uh, is that the way you would describe it? Do we go back years and years uh, to get to the source of where some of the very important aspects of this vaccine started to develop? Absolutely. Um, in order to develop the two vaccines that are currently available in the United States, although under limited availability, um, we had to understand how genetic material works. We had to understand how to manipulate it, how to build it, and then how this particular type of vaccine could then work to help the body produce antibodies. So there was a huge amount of work that went on. But I think the other point I would make about the rapid development of the vaccine is the tremendous extent of which resources that were plowed in both as part of the U.S. government's initiative, Operation Warp Speed, and by private companies like Pfizer, 
billions and billions of dollars, tens of thousands of researchers working full-time to help address the COVID pandemic. And the combination of the knowledge acquired and the resources put in means that the vaccine could be developed quickly. And it's understanding that both of those things that should help diffuse some of the skepticism about how the fact that the vaccine was developed so quickly that maybe it was a rush job. Unbelievable knowledge, advances in science, and a tremendous extent of resources were put in to help build these vaccines. Dr. Alan Kadish is with us. I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, that's good. President of Turo College, when you talk about the speed, and you know that Turo College has quite an imprint in Israel, I'm wondering what you think of the speed with which people are being inoculated there and how they may be the first country, I would guess, at this point that would really be able to declare themselves completely open down the road because of the speed that's going on over there. So it, it has been tremendous. Uh, the vaccine is uh, much more widely available in Israel than it is in the United States. And I think there are three reasons for that. Um, one is, of course, it's a smaller population. It makes it easier to address. Um, the second is that uh, in, there are advantages and disadvantages to different kinds of healthcare systems. I don't want to get too deep into politics here. But for this particular um, application, which is getting the vaccine into people's hands as quickly as possible, um, the fact that they have a more centralized healthcare system with essentially four different coupot health maintenance organizations, insurers that take care of everybody, that makes it easier to distribute the vaccine. And finally, the Israeli government has done a great job negotiating uh, with companies that uh, have a good relationship with Israel for a variety of reasons in getting the vaccine into Israel. We talk about the herd immunity, and um, our, our government officials are starting to, you know, hint to the fact that even with the vaccine becoming um, uh, more uh, more available, nonetheless, we're still going to have to adhere to certain restrictions over the next few months. I mean, at what point do you think the social distancing, mask wearing, all the things that you know that at the moment are you know such important parts of our lives? <laughs> When do you think that we're going to move on from those? How many months will it take? So my best guess is uh, the fall of 21. Right. Um, and I say that for the following reasons. And uh, there are also some caveats to that. Um, it, it's taking a while to get the vaccine out there. Uh, people are talking about having adequate doses for the general population in, in the spring or second quarter of 21, um, and then to wait for everyone to get it and to get herd immunity, I think we're looking at the fall, assuming things go well. Uh, it's assuming that um, the, the allergic reactions remain minimal and that there are no significant mutations of the, vaccine, of the virus that affect and alter the effectiveness of the vaccine. But I think if I had to pick a sort of average case scenario, it would be the fall of 21. Do we completely go back to normal at that point? I think it's a little too early to say that. But I think uh, when we've talked within the organization, for example, about when do we think we can have an indoor dinner, uh, my, our best guess is that we can do it in the fall. So a regular, normal campus experience, which, again, I would bet your thousands of students are craving, and, and so many students around the country in general are craving, 
it is possible in your estimation that when we get to Labor Day, we could be starting a very close to normal campus experience. So uh, the answer is yes, but with two qualifications. One is, as I said, I think there's still going to be some restrictions depending on where in herd immunity we are. But the second is there's a lot of talk about the potential for changes in higher education. Um, Students, I think, at least those that access to the right resources, and so I'm not talking about K through 12 where there have been some issues uh, in students having the right environment to study at home, but in in the higher education environment, um, I think people are more comfortable with remote learning than they thought they would be. Um, and uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is uh, we and other colleges have recognized, uh, and we've been doing this for years, um, that remote learning doesn't just mean you record a lecture and you play it for the students. There's a possibility of incorporating active learning, watching media pulling down information from the Internet in ways that can enhance the remote learning experience. Uh, So it's not just sitting and listening to a lecture, but there are discussion groups, there are chat rooms, there's access to Internet resources. When you design a course for remote learning, it's very different from just recording a lecture. Mm. Um, And so my sense is, certainly in our experience, that the student's reaction to remote learning has been better than expected. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a huge number of people who want to be purely remote, but what we began even before COVID was a little bit of a hybrid model where some students, certainly not the majority or all of them, but some students, even who were in a traditional undergraduate college experience, found it useful to take one or two courses a semester online. And the reason is it's easy to schedule. It was easier for them to incorporate it in the rest of their day. And it created a little more variability in the environment. So they still had the social interaction of the college experience. They still had mentors in in in-person classes. But their schedule was perhaps a little bit easier because they incorporated some extent of hybrid learning. I'm not sure that higher education is going to go back to the way it was. In fact, most experts say it's not, um, because there are other things, there are advances that are being made in remote education, um, including personalized learning using artificial intelligence, where, for example, if there's a concept that comes easily to a student, you kind of sail through it, and if there's a a concept that's more difficult, the, the remote learning experience can actually focus the education on what that student needs. That's coming in the future regardless. So I don't think we go back exactly to the way we were. But the marketplace often dictates things like this, and I would seem, and I don't know if this is the case with Turo, but it seems to me that nationwide there are so many students that you really look forward to the, you know, college campus experience. And, and, uh, you know, and there's a a specific value in that for them, uh, not just from an educational standpoint, but from a social standpoint. Um, Do we need to see how the marketplace reacts to all this before, you know, completely overhauling a college experience? So uh, I would say, of course, the answer is yes. And 
no one ever knows how the marketplace is exactly going to react, except perhaps Jeff Bezos. But <laughs> uh, but but um, predictions are that we're not going to be exactly the same. And I want to clarify: I'm not saying that people aren't going to go to a bricks and mortar college right. and aren't going to have a college experience. But what I am saying is that we may incorporate more remote experiences in that learning. For example, Harvard College for a while had students on campus in the dormitory rooms, but had all their classes remote. Right. Because they wanted students to have the social on-campus experience, even though, of course, it was mitigated by distance learning, and that model didn't last very long because of COVID. But the idea was we want the on-campus experience, but we can incorporate components of remote learning, and use, particularly, as I said, using artificial intelligence. And that's what I see as the future, whether that happens in six months or a year or five years, it's not clear. And, and again, I'm not suggesting that college goes away or that on-campus experiences go away, but that just that they may look a little different. Based on what you're telling us, you must be sitting with your staff, remotely or not, right now, and, and thinking in you know many different directions. You know, if, if things happen in the following way in the first half of 20, 2021, we're going to you know, go in this direction. If things happen between now and the fall, a certain other way, we may go in that direction. You're really preparing, I would guess, for a lot of different eventualities. Yeah, it's been both exhilarating and kind of difficult. Yeah, frustrating. Uh, but but, but um, the important thing, I think we're at a time of disruption. And the important thing at a time of disruption is to be flexible and to be able to both be proactive and reactive. And that's what we're trying to do at Turo. And, you know, we have... We have um, different components to Turo, Uh, the Jewish education learning component, the Smicha programs. We don't expect those to change in a significant way. Right. But the rest of the experiences, um, you know, as I said, even before COVID, many of these things were happening. We were incorporating remote learning as part of bricks-and-mortar experiences. Medical schools, for example, we run five medical schools. Medical schools all over the country – uh, are moving to much more interactive learning, going away from the sit-in-the-classroom lecture model. So there have been changes that have been going on in higher education. I think the COVID pandemic is going to accelerate those changes. Yeah, you mentioned medicine. Turo is a national leader in medical and healthcare education. Uh, doctors, pharmacists, physician assistants, occupational therapists, physical therapists, the categories go on and on, and it's in the thousands in each one. Um, with, with all that in mind, and we've heard about you know uh, the Fauci effect, do you anticipate that your medical and healthcare education is going to increase significantly in the next year or two? Well, there's two issues. Um, one is the number of students applying, and in medical school, that has skyrocketed. Wow. Uh, this year, our MD program, New York Medical College, has over 14,000 applicants for 210 spaces. Wow. Um, which is an increase of about 25% mm-hmm. or 30% over where we were last year. How long that will last, we don't know, but there's been a huge increase in applications. Um, as far as supply is concerned, predictions are still that we'll need more physicians in the United States. Um, there are a lot of resources required to educate physicians, so ramping up quickly is not an option. It has to be carefully planned, and we've got to make sure that we have the clinical experiences for students. So we're looking at expanding. Um, we expanded our class size in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Vegas a couple of years ago. And we're looking at other expansions, but it's a carefully 
planned out process that takes years. So it's not that's not going to happen in a year or two. Right. I would think things are a little bit different than when you first entered the medical field. Things are a little bit different in this country. Also, some people tend to tell the next generation uh, some of the negative things that are associated with their industry. Would you highly recommend uh, to those young people that are looking in 2020 and 2021 to enter the medical field, you, would you highly recommend it to them? Uh, what I would say is that uh, you should go into health care if it's a passion. Mm. It's not easy. Particularly, uh, you know, we've seen tremendous stress on healthcare providers, not just physicians, but nurses on the front lines, PAs, EMTs. There have been tremendous stresses on healthcare providers um, in the last uh, year, and those have been building up over time. So it's great, it's a great service to be able to help people. you know, but there's tremendous Masiras Nefesh that's needed. There's tremendous dedication. Um, and, you know, some of the uh, other benefits of being a physician, which is possessing unique knowledge and uh, working independently and having a very high chance of economic success, those are diminishing with changes in medicine in the United States. Right. So my advice is go into healthcare if you love it. It's a it's a tremendous profession, a tremendous way of helping people, uh, but don't do it just because it's there. Have you heard because from? It's tough. Yeah, that's for sure. Have Have you heard from alumni who are now doctors and nurses about their experiences during COVID nineteen? Have you heard specific stories from those who you remember as students? Um, we've certainly heard a lot of stories, and we've heard a lot of stories from our current students, um, and um, it's been stressful. There's no question it's been stressful. People are scared. Um, Medical education and resident education was disrupted in a major way. And um, we tried to figure out how to balance education with the dangers of COVID. Um, And seeing people uh, previously healthy die, huge numbers of people in the ICU with little to do to help them, Right. has a psychological impact, uh, tremendously needed, tremendous overextended work hours because hospitals were swamped. It's been tough. I can imagine the type of, uh, of consultations, I want to be careful which word I use, consultations that doctors and nurses, especially the young ones, need just to be able to talk about their experiences and to understand that to a degree this is you know this is the industry right i mean you could attest to that this is this is the industry and this happens once in a while in terms of the volume and in terms of severity uh, but at the same time you don't want this, them to be scarred for life and you know in terms of staying in this profession so we're trying to do the best we can with psychological support uh but the other thing of course that we have to recognize is you mentioned it happens from time to time not really um we've never seen anything like this even during mm-hmm. the height uh, of the AIDS epidemic, we never saw hospitals and ICUs swamped in this way. Right. Um, and you know, we there were there was a short period when we didn't understand how AIDS was transmitted, where things were pretty frightening. Um, there was a little bit of a different response that time, at that time, which was interesting. Um, you know, I trained during the start uh, of AIDS developing. Um, and no one would even consider pulling medical students from clinical care 
because they were afraid of taking care of AIDS patients. Um, We had a very different reaction at this point. Uh, Students were immediately pulled. Things were a little bit different because hospitals were swamped and education was tough, and there were some places that lacked PPE. Uh, But it was an interesting uh, and, and difficult situation, figuring out how to get students trained and how to protect them, but also make them understand that uh, as a physician or a healthcare provider, you're, you have a huge obligation to your patients. What a time we're living in. The education system completely uh, <laughs> different than what we uh, had been used to. The medical system different than what we've been used to. And you're very involved in both. <laughs> and, and no doubt other areas of your life have been affected as well, uh, like all of us. Uh, but those are two main areas that have been so dominant uh, in terms of this whole COVID-19 episode. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Thank God uh, those of us have, who survived have survived to this point, and now we just have to get to the point where uh, the country has herd immunity and we're able to get back to a normal existence, please God. Yeah, I just closed by saying we're at a time of great hope but also great danger. Yeah. Um, cases around the United States are at record highs. People are dying. Um, and the fact that the vaccine is becoming available, although it's going to be a few months before it's generally available, the fact that the vaccine is becoming available is all the more reason to redouble our efforts to be careful. Because if we were looking at an unlimited amount of time having to deal with COVID, years and years and years, you can say, listen, I can't stop my life forever. But now we're talking about a few months. So my message is wear masks, stay isolated, be careful because help's on the way. You don't have to live like this forever. Yeah, well said. Uh, Dr. Alan Kadish is president of Turo College and University System. Information about uh, everything having to do with Turo at Turo.edu, Turo.edu. I thank you for your comments regarding the uh, vaccine. I hope that will allay some fears out there. And I thank you so much for joining us this morning on JM and the AM. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, as always. Dr. Alan Kadish, again, go to Turo.edu for information about all of this, especially if you do want to explore something in the medical field or any of the uh, areas of expertise when it comes to a Turo education. Tuesday morning broadcast, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and the Alchemsegal.com and the Alchemsegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app.